This is Josh from the Radical Team covering for Stacy Martin. Did you know it's possible to have a kind of faith that is not saving faith? The Bible says that even the demons believe and tremble before God, and yet they don't have saving faith. According to James 2.14-19, faith that doesn't produce works is dead. True saving faith rests in Christ for salvation, but it inevitably produces the faith of the good works, including helping those in need. In this message, David Platt challenges us to consider whether our faith is genuine. Genuine faith acts. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here's David with a message titled, Faith Acts. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, my original plan was to preach through chapter 2, verse 14 through 26, all in one week, and plans have changed. As I have gotten into this text, there is absolutely no way we could get through this whole passage in one week. So we're going to take the next three weeks, and we're only going to get to verse 19 today, and even that is a bit of a stretch. Uh, I mentioned last week, James messes messes you up bad. Like you cannot walk through this book and continue to live the same. You can't just like listen to it. When he says at the very beginning, don't listen, do it. If you don't do it, you're missing the whole point of Christianity. So do it. So it's really the essence of this text that we're going to be diving into over the next few weeks. Now I want to to ask you to kind of walk with me patiently, deliberately, very intentionally through this text because there are truths here. We're going to walk through three truths this morning that are open to misunderstanding at a variety of points. And it'll be the same over the next couple of weeks. These verses are much discussed, even much debated. How do these verses tie in with the rest of the teaching of the New Testament? So we're going to have to walk carefully through them. But in the process, we're going to see some truths that I'm convinced will radically challenge and change our lives. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. Oh God, we do not want to settle for dead faith. And we certainly do not want to settle for demonic faith. We want genuine faith. Faith that 
believes you and follows you. Faith that receives your truth and reflects your love. We know that this kind of faith only comes as a gift from you by your grace. So we pray that by your grace, through your spirit, you would take our hearts and you would open our understanding to the faith that is inside of us that today you might draw people in this room in many cases for the first time to faith in you. And we pray that the faith you birth in us would lead to extraordinary action in the world. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. James picks up in verse 14 right where we left off last week. We saw at the end of chapter two, verse 12, 13, James saying that when you receive the mercy of God in your heart, then you reflect the mercy of God in your life. And that picture, particularly as it pertains to favoritism and helping the poor and not showing preference to the rich, he carries over into this passage three truths that I want us to walk very deliberately through this morning. And they really reiterate the same reality. What we'll see in this whole passage is James repeating the same thing over and over and over again, saying it in different ways. First truth, faith in our hearts is evident in the fruit of our lives. Faith in our hearts is evident in the fruit of our lives. This is the theme, I would say, of James 2, 14 through 26. It's repeated three different times, beginning, middle, and end of this passage. Beginning, look at verse 17. You might underline this every time it says this. In the same way, faith by itself, here it is, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Underline that. Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Then you get to verse 20. He says, you foolish man. Middle of the passage here. Do you want evidence that, here it is, underline it, faith without deeds is useless. Faith without deeds is useless. Then you get to the very last verse, verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, here it is, underline it, faith without deeds is dead. Faith without action, dead. Faith without deeds, useless. Faith without deeds, dead. You get the point. Now what does it mean for faith to be dead? It means that it does not save, verse 14. Does this kind of faith save? And the implication is no. It's faith that does not save. It does not justify, we'll get to that in verse 24, does not make us right before God. It has no life in it. It is non-existent. And this is key right here. Because faith, James is not contrasting immature faith with mature faith. He's not contrasting nominal faith with devoted faith. He's contrasting faith with nothing. No faith. Now, don't miss it. It's a man who claims to have faith. And this is the picture from the very beginning here in verse 14. Don't miss it. It is possible to claim to have faith, to claim to have a faith that saves and not to have faith at all. This is 
dangerously deceptive. I urge you to hear this this morning. It is possible to claim to have faith, to claim to have a faith that saves, and the reality is you don't have faith, don't have a faith that saves at all. Well, how do you know then? How do you know if you have faith? Faith that saves. How do you know if you have faith? And James says, look at the fruit. I'll show you my faith by what I do. Faith produces fruit. You can tell if faith is present based on whether or not fruit is present. This is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Any tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. By their fruit, you will recognize them. When you see apples hanging from the limb of a tree, you say, that is an apple tree. How'd you know? It has apples on it. It's that simple. What is evident on the outside makes clear what is on the inside. So if you see fruit, then that is evidence of faith. If there is no fruit, there is no faith. There is no fruit, there is no faith. Faith always produces fruit. Now, James is not saying you need to add deeds to faith in order to be saved. James is saying faith produces deeds. Flows from faith. It's the overflow. So this is the picture from the very beginning. Faith in our hearts is evident in the fruit in our lives. Now that truth sets the stage for the second truth that is jaw-dropping that James illustrates. Faith in our hearts is evident in the fruit of our lives. It is the next step in this passage, what he illustrates, truth number two. People who claim to be Christians but fail to help poverty-stricken fellow believers are in fact not saved. People who claim to be Christians but fail to help poverty-stricken fellow believers are in fact not saved. Now, I know some of you think I'm nuts. Others are already formatting the email response in your heads. So... Stick with me for just a moment. Is this not the abundantly clear truth of James 2, 15 and 16? Think about it. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. He is at your doorstep with barely enough clothing to cover him, has rags on and has no food 
literally no food for the day, no means to provide food. He is starving. Shamed, cold, miserable, and hungry. He stands at your doorstep, and you say to him, go, I wish you well. Literally, go in peace. This was a benediction you would say or even pray over someone they were leaving. God bless you. God be with you. Be warm and well-fed. Now, in the original language of the New Testament, this could be, these verbs could be middle voice or passive voice, which means there's two possible translations here. Middle voice, the translation would be warm and feed yourself. How? Crass. Warm and feed yourself. As if they could. Passive would be, stay warm and be well fed. As if they would. As if they could do that in their lives. The picture is, it's ludicrous. Obviously, James says, what good is that for this person? And what James is saying is, in the same way, that such faith does not save this person in their need, help this person in their need, in the same way that this kind of faith, so-called faith, does not help this person in need, so this kind of faith does not save your soul. In the same way that this kind of faith does nothing for the person in need, this kind of faith, so-called faith, does nothing for your soul. Picture is, people who claim to be Christians and fail to help poverty-stricken fellow believers are in fact not saved. You can do cartwheels all around this text to try to find a way out of that, but it is the glaring truth there. Someone who responds to a brother or sister like this in need clearly does not have faith. It's the same thing 1 John 3.17 says. If a man, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but does nothing to help him, how can the love of God be in him? The implication is there's no way the love of God be in him because if the love of God was in him, it would bear fruit. But because there is no fruit, it's exactly what we saw in the previous truth. Because there is no fruit, the fruit is mercy toward the poor. Because there is no fruit, then it's clear evidence there is no faith. Now, I want to be very careful here. I want to walk you through two kind of sub-truths here that are Crucial, vital for understanding this. First, acts of mercy are not means to salvation. Acts of mercy are not means to salvation. We do not help the poor in order to be saved. I repeat that. We do not help the poor in order to be saved. Acts of mercy are not means to salvation. What is the means to salvation? Mercy and grace of God and Christ is the means to salvation. Only means to salvation. And James has shown us this already. Back in James chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, remember what he said? Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. That's grace. God God, by his initiative, has given us birth. He's given us life. 
The word planted in us, down in verse 21, has saved us. God has given us life through his word inside of us. Who in here, once dead, can choose to become alive? No one can. You have to be given life. That's the whole picture that James has already set up for us. The mercy of God is the means to salvation. Now I want you to think about this for just a second. I want you to think about the glorious, gracious mercy of God in your life. You were born into a context where you have been exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a billion people in the world who cannot say that today. More than a billion. You were born into a context where you have been exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll take it a step further, not just spiritually, but physically. You were born in a context where there is, compared to the rest of the world, abundant supplies of clean water and food. We say, well, I'm starving. We have no clue what starving is. We were born into a context where there is abundance of clean water and food. Born into a context where you have heard the gospel and been surrounded by clean water and food. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to remind you this morning, you had absolutely nothing to do with that. You were born into this context only by the grace and mercy of God. So his mercy is the means to salvation. Not our acts of mercy. Acts of mercy are not the means of salvation. So here's the difference. Acts of mercy are not means of salvation, but acts of mercy are necessary evidence of salvation. Part of me wished I would have written natural overflow of salvation right there. So you might write it in. It's kind of double points, okay? Necessary evidence and it's both. Acts of mercy are necessary evidence of salvation and natural overflow of salvation. Now, we're going to talk more about this next week when we look at James and compare him with Paul. But suffice to say at this point, when James talks about deeds, he's talking in a very different way than Paul is often talking about works. What James does whenever he talks about deeds all throughout this passage, he's talking about deeds not in the sense of earning favor before God. He's talking about deeds as the fruit of faith in God. It's a big difference. He's not talking about deeds as something we do in order to earn favor before God. He's talking about deeds as the fruit, like we saw the fruit of faith in God. And what he's saying is mercy toward the poor is evidence of mercy in our hearts. If the mercy of God and the gospel has transformed your hearts, then you will not see someone in need and do nothing. That's impossible. Mercy flows from you. It's evidence of what is in your heart in the same way that apples are evidence of an apple tree. Tim Keller, pastor of a great church in New York City, does mercy ministry all over that city and around the world. Love this quote from him. He said, mercy to the full range of human needs is such an essential mark of a Christian that it can be used as a test of true faith. Mercy is not an optional addition to being a Christian. 
Rather, a life poured out in deeds of mercy is the sign of genuine faith. If there is no mercy toward the needy, then there is no faith. Acts of mercy are evidence of salvation. You want to know where this is clearest? Go over with me to Matthew chapter 25. Take a left. Go back to the Gospels. First Gospel, Matthew chapter 25. Look at verse 31. This is a passage that I'm guessing is familiar to many of you. It is, this is where it's, it's just clearest and most humbling, most penetrating. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, talking, a passage talking about future judgment. And this is Jesus speaking. Listen to what happens. Matthew 25, verse 31. It's crystal clear here that faith in Christ bears fruit of mercy toward the poor. And if there is no mercy to the poor, that means there obviously is no faith in Christ. Look in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. Verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Pause right there. That's mercy. That's grace. You hear that? Blessed by my Father. Kingdom prepared for you since, since the creation of the world. It's echoed in Ephesians chapter 1. Before the creation of the world, predestined to be adopted as his sons through the redemption of, of, that comes through Christ. This is the picture of grace and mercy. Now I want you to see how that mercy is expressed in what they do. In verse 35, now let me encourage you to circle every time you see first person pronoun here. Either I or me. I or me. This is Jesus speaking. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Side note, verse 36 there, you looked after, same word that's used in James chapter 127, look after orphans and widows. Same word in the New Testament. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Wow. Did you catch that? Jesus says, that your response to the poor and needy was just as if you were responding to me. Think about that. If you saw Christ hungry, would you feed him? If you saw Christ thirsty, would you feed him? Yes, absolutely. If we didn't, There'd be a lot of reason to question whether or not we were Christians, right? And what Jesus is saying is that what you have done to the least of these brothers is a reflection of what you do to me. What a powerful image. Now, it's powerful 
in an encouraging way when we think about Christ and the poor. But then the converse picture, verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and eating clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Those who ignore the poor do so as if they were ignoring Christ himself. And those who ignore Christ show that Christ is not real in their hearts and eternal fire is their destination. Don't miss it. This is not Jesus or James saying, do good deeds, acts of mercy in order to be saved. It's Jesus and James saying, when Christ is in your heart, acts of mercy will flow toward those who are needy around you. Which is how we can say this truth that if you do not care for poverty-stricken believers, then you are in fact not saved. I love what Spurgeon said here. This is so important, this fact that we do acts of mercy not as means to salvation, but as the overflow, the evidence of our salvation, because this is where we realize practically our giving to the poor is not motivated by guilt. Follow with me here. Our giving to the poor is not motivated by guilt, as if we have to do these things, we're obligated to do these things, we have to in order to get something. No. We are not motivated by guilt as followers of Christ. We're motivated by the gospel, the power of Christ, faith in Christ. He lives in us, the overflow of our hearts where we are compelled to give to the poor, where it is not a duty as much as it is a delight, where we enjoy giving to the poor because in the same way that we would enjoy giving to Christ himself, I love what Spurgeon said about this passage in Matthew 25. He says, they fed hungry, fed the hungry, clothed the naked, visited the sick. Why? For Christ's sake, because it was the sweetest thing in the world to do anything for Jesus. They did it because they delighted doing it, because they could not help doing it, because their new nature impelled them to do it. This is the fruit of faith, mercy toward the poor. And that sets the stage for the final truth. Again, in a sense, the same reality expressed in a different way. Faith in our hearts evident in the fruit of our lives. People who claim to be Christians but do not help fellow poverty-stricken believers are in fact not saved. Third truth, ultimately, deedless faith is useless faith. James continues this dialogue and he brings in an imaginary person who says, okay, you've got faith. You've got deeds, I've got faith. And he tries to separate the two from one another. Some people have mercy, some people don't. Some people have work, some people don't. And James says, no, there's no way you can separate these two. I'll show you my faith by what I 
do. And then he gets to verse 20, back here in James 2, verse 20. He reiterates what he just said, and we're going to dive into this more next week. But he said, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? It's useless. If you have this kind of so-called faith, what good is it? It's no good to your brother or sister who's in need. What kind of faith, what, what kind of good does that do them? It's no good to them, and it's no good to you because it doesn't save your soul. It is useless faith. It's nothing. It's worth nothing. It's dead. And this is where James makes things very, very clear. He says, faith is not mere intellectual assent. Faith is not mere intellectual assent. You believe there is one God, and every good Jewish man or woman knew the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He said, good. The demons believe that. So you, you've, you've said, I believe in this. But the reality is demons. Think of all the demons believe. Demons believe in the existence of God. Demons believe in the deity of Christ. Demons believe in the presence of heaven and hell. Demons believe that Christ is the eternal judge. Demons believe that only Christ is able to save. Demons believe all of those things. I fear that there are countless men and women who have adopted a soul-damning faith that consists only of intellectual assent to the truth of God and Christ. I'm guessing that there are people all across this room this morning who have right belief about God but do not have faith that saves. It's not mere intellectual sin. Second, it's not simply an emotional response. Not just intellectual what demons have, it's emotional as well. Even the demons believe that and what? They shudder, they tremble. They are emotionally affected by that reality of God. Faith, not merely an emotional response. I wonder how many of us have based our eternal security, our understanding on faith, a faith based on our feelings at any particular moment. Our feelings about God. Well, I feel this or feel that. Faith is not mere intellectual assent, and faith is not simply an emotional response. You can have both of those and still be on the same plane as demons. Faith involves willful obedience. That's the point. You know faith. You show faith, not just by what you think or feel, but by what you do. Faith acts. Now, I'm not saying, James not saying that what we believe in our minds, what we feel in our hearts is not important. Our emotions, our intellect are extremely important in this picture. But if faith is limited to those two realms and avoids willful obedience, then it's not faith. It's not faith. Faith acts. Faith acts. And if it doesn't act, it's dead. So these are the truth. Faith, faith in our hearts is evident in the fruit of our lives. People who claim to be Christians and fail to help poverty-stricken fellow believers, in fact, are not saved. Acts of mercy, not means to salvation, but evidence, overflow of salvation. Ultimately, deedless faith is useless faith. Faith, not just intellectual assent or emotional response. It is willful obedience. Faith acts. Well, that's it for today's episode. For additional articles, podcast events, and more, visit Radical.net or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 